And so today uh, we are looking at, we have two passages that touch on our last theme, which is a theme of confidence. And so we're going to read from 1 John 3, verses 19 through 24, and 1 John 4, 13 through 18. If you're using the Blue Bibles, uh, you can find the first passage on page 1022, 1 John chapter 3. So page 1022, I'm going to start with 1 John 3, 19 through 24, and let's stand together for the reading of the word. So 1 John 3, 19 through 24, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in them. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. All right, and then First John chapter 4 verses 13 through 19. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus uh, is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray. God, we see in these passages the amazing truth, the amazing reality that one of the things you want for us is to be confident in your love, not to be fearful or um, just trembling before you, but with humility, with a, a, an appropriate awe and reverence for your holiness, Lord, for us to at the same time trust that you have adopted us as your children, that you have loved us completely, and you want us to live in that confident reality. And so I pray that you would help grow that in us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So John Wesley was a pastor and church leader in the 1700s who founded the group that went on to become the Methodist Church. Um, we're not Methodists, if you didn't know, but we have tremendous respect for Wesley as a person and as a pastor, and he had a huge positive impact on just the way that Christianity is lived out, kind of in the circles that include our circles and across like the world, you know, kind, of, kind of a global impact. 
Um, so Wesley, as a young man, he considered himself a Christian and even had an interest in Christian ministry. And so as a young man, he set sail from England where he lived to the American colonies to go do some ministry work over there. But while he was on the ship, they were struck by this massive storm. And by Wesley's own account, he totally panicked and his faith was just shattered, like went to nothing. And so he was just sort of like a, a blubbering, panicking mess. Um, and that was, that was his experience. He had no confidence whatsoever in anything with regards to the storm. But he saw someone, a group of people actually, who had a completely different response. This is how one account puts it. It says that John was at a worship service, us is on the ship during the storm, with a group of German Moravians, which is another like, sec, uh, you know, group of Christians, when a huge wave engulfed the ship and water poured down into the cabins. While the English passengers screamed in terror, the Moravians continued singing, men, women, and children seemingly untroubled. Later, John asked one of the Moravians if they hadn't been afraid. He replied that not even the women and children had been afraid. None of them were afraid to die. John knew that they had something he didn't, an absolute trust in God. They were prepared to lose their lives because they knew that God was never going to let them go. See, John's experience of having his own faith totally shattered, totally undone by a storm, and then seeing this group of men, women, and children singing, literally singing through the storm, made him realize that for whatever Christian beliefs he may have had, there was something radically lacking in his experience of God. And that eventually led to him having you know, basically a conversion experience and experiencing God in a completely new way, giving him this fresh confidence and power and experience of God that totally transformed his life. And downstream of that has led to, once again, like we said, uh, immense fruit born in the global church, all downstream of him seeing these Christians who had a radical confidence in God that he didn't have. And so Christian confidence wasn't just serving the Moravians and helping them through that bad experience. It's not just a therapeutic thing. It actually led to a greater testimony of God's reality and God's goodness that led missionally to this young man, you know, maybe coming to faith or certainly coming to a different kind of experience through seeing Christian confidence. Over and over in First uh, John, the letter that we've been going through, John has said things like, by this we know, or this is how we know. So John has been all about shoring up the Christian's confidence in the truths of Christianity, which we've talked about a few weeks ago, in the righteous life of Christianity, the path that God calls us to walk, and the sacrificial love that God calls us to show. John wants them to be confident in those things, and he wants them to be confident in their relationship with God. And so we've studied confidence as sort of a secondary thing that supports those. But today, John kind of zooms in on confidence itself. And so we're going to do that as well. And we're going to look especially at one kind of confidence. And what we're looking at is this. See, it's possible to believe that Christianity is true, that Jesus is the fully divine and fully human son of God and savior and king of the world. It's possible to believe that the Christian life is good, that this is the way that we're supposed to live. And it's even possible to believe that it's good and right to love others like Jesus did, to think that his ethic is a good ethic and try to live that out. 
that it's possible to believe all of those things and also to fear or suspect that I'm missing out on them. To live my entire life with sort of this sense that I'm, I'm, as one author puts it, like a bug that God has to touch but is reluctant to do so. And that that's how I live my Christian life with an utter lack of confidence in God's love for me. It is also possible to have an unfounded confidence in God's love, but that's, you know, we've talked on that already, and so we're not going to touch on that today. But let's look at 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. So John says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. See, John wants his readers to know, wherever their feelings take them in a moment, that they are of the truth and have a reassured heart before God, or a settled heart is kind of the, another way to translate that. He wants them to have confidence before God. And in chapter 4, verse 17, he says, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. So one of John's goals And one of God's goals for us is that God's people will have a humble, holy confidence in their heavenly Father's love. That their hearts will be at rest in his love for them as they are striving to live the Christian life. And that even the prospect of the day of judgment, where we'll give an account for how we've lived our lives before God, will not be a matter of fear or doubt, but will be so confident in God's love that we'll face even that with faith instead of fear. As John says, God wants us to have this kind of confidence. He wants it because he loves us, and a good father wants his kids to be confident in their love for him. We don't, like, as as dads, we who are dads, we don't want our kids kind of with this crawling, creeping fear of us. We want them to know that they can be secure in our love for them. And so God, our heavenly father, wants that that much more. And he wants it not just for our own sake and our relationship with him, but also because confidence inspires others and testifies to others of his reality, like the Moravians' confidence testified to John Wesley of God's uh, reality, that there's a missional element to our confidence in God's love for us that shows his greatness to the world. It builds his kingdom. So God wants us to be confident in his love. And so we're going to look at two things this morning. We're going to look first at our foundation for confidence in God. And then we're going to look second at the experience of confidence in God. So first, let's look at the foundation of our confidence in him. And we'll start in chapter 4. I'm going to read starting in verse 13 for a little bit. He says, John writes, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. So these verses are all connected, but I want to start in verse 14 to go through them. See, John starts his call to confidence by reminding these Christians of something he said several times already in different ways through the letter. He says, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. So John says, remember once again what I saw 
what I touched with my hands, like he said at the beginning of chapter one. He said, we saw, we apostles, we saw Jesus talk and act and live as the son of the father in heaven. We saw him heal sickness. We saw him raise the dead. We saw him walk on water. We saw him teach with the authority of God himself and say things like, I and the father are one. And we saw him, we heard him say that he was going to die for the sins of the world and rise again. And then we saw him do it and we touched him and we ate uh, fish with him on the back end of that happening that he called an unbelievable, miraculous shot of I'm going to die for the sins of the world and rise again. And then he did, which is vindication that he was who he said he was. And we were there for the whole thing. So John says, confidence starts with the real events of history that we bore witness to, that we told you about when we first came to you. And those events lead us to a confession, which is not in this case an acknowledgement of guilt and sin like we did in our service, but just an acknowledgement of truth, kind of a confession of belief. So verse 15, John says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So those events the apostles witnessed led them to the conclusion that Jesus was indeed the Son of God that he claimed to be, that he was completely divine, completely human, that he was the Savior and King of the world. And so John says our confidence is based on that reality. It's not based on my feelings about God in a moment or anything else in, in me or about me. It starts with these things that God did and the reality that they testified to. And these truths, they're not just facts of history that we can believe. John says in verse 16, they're signs of God's great love for us. So they're not even just things that happen in history. They're things that testify to how much God cares about us. So he says, uh, nothing obligated God to do this for us, just like nothing obligated God to create us in the beginning. He could have left our world to its selfishness and its sin when we rejected him, and he would have been perfectly just to do that. Because we weren't just someone who was, you know, like drowning and he put himself at risk to save us. We had made ourselves his enemies and completely alienated ourselves from him. And that's how all of us live our lives. That's what it means to live apart from God, is to live totally alienated from him as his enemy. And God gave up his son for his enemies, to make his enemies his children. The Apostle Paul writes to the Romans, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So these objective events from history, you know, summarized in the death and resurrection of Jesus, are things that we believe. They're things outside us that we can look to for confidence but they're not just events. Those are acts of overflowing love that are part of God adopting us into his family as his sons and daughters. They're signs of his great love for us, how far he was willing to go for our sake. Uh, last year, I think it was, we gave out a lot of copies of the book Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, which is an incredible just exposition of God's heart for people who are in suffering and sin. 
And one of the things he talks about over and over again is that we tend to assume, because this is how we work, that the more sin or struggle we see from someone, the more weight that they're going to be to carry around, the more likely we are to kind of distance ourselves from that person and want to hold them at arm's length because we can feel the weight that that's going to be. But God's heart is completely the opposite, that not just our struggles, but even our sin move him in pity to reach out down in love to us to draw us back to himself and to cleanse us and forgive us of those things and reconcile us to himself afresh. And he just makes that case over and over again from scripture in a beautiful and compelling way. And so that's what we look at when we say that God wants us to have confidence in him. We point to everything that God has done for us through Jesus. And we say, ah, these are objective truths these truths that we call the gospel, and they are the foundation that God wants us to build our confidence on. And so God wants us to stand on this foundation of all of these things that he has done for us, not just these things he calls us to do, but these things he has done for us. And all of those things so far that we've talked about are, they're objective. That means they're true, whatever we think of them, and they're kind of outside us. They're events of history. But God gives us more than that to help us have confidence in him. He goes a step farther. Now let's look at chapter 4, verse 13 that we read. He says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. So John says it's not just this objective thing outside of you that God has done for you, that God has sent the third person of the Trinity, the Father's the first, the Son is the second, the Spirit, Holy Spirit is the third, into our souls to bring these truths to life in us, to wake us up so that we can even see them for what they are, because uh, the, kind of the testimony of the Bible is that that's how it works, that if God doesn't open our eyes, we remain blind to his truth. That if God doesn't wake us up to see these things, uh, we're like a dead body that's not you know, kind of in need of a little help, uh, it needs to be resurrected so it can come alive to these things. And so he says, if we see these for what they are, if we can believe them and confess them and acknowledge them, then that is a sign that God has put his spirit in us to wake us up and to start bringing us to himself and reconcile us to himself. And so the reason we can see these things is that God has opened our eyes to them. And he confirms them through the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the foundation of our confidence that we've been talking about this whole time, it's the objective work of God done for us. Uh, So it's what we call the truths of the gospel, that God has by his grace reconciled us to himself and saved us. So when we look for confidence and we say we hope to have confidence in God, the first place we look is not inside ourselves for anything we do or have done. It's what God has done for us. And that's what we stand on. That's why we're confident. It's not in anything that I could do or will do or have done. It's in what God has done for me. That's what begins to give us this humble, happy awareness of God's fatherly love for us. But as John acknowledges in chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, that we already read about our hearts condemning us, we don't always experience that confidence. So he says in verse 19 that sometimes our hearts need to be reassured. They need to be soothed or persuaded. And sometimes, like verse 20 says, our hearts condemn us and have to be overridden. 
So our feelings aren't an infallible guide to anything, you know, including God's love for us. So our foundation for confidence is always solid. That never changes because it's what God has done. But our experience of confidence can wax and wane over the course of our lives. And so that's what we want to look at now is what impacts for good and ill our experience of confidence in God. Let's look first at chapter 3, starting in verse 21. So John says this, chapter 3, starting verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. So starting in verse 22, he tells us what kinds of things shore up our experience of confidence in God. Um, And I didn't plan it this way, but God is good. Um, You could summarize them as the four other sermons that we've preached on through 1 John. Um, They're all kind of here in this text. So he says, first, we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. That means we live after the pattern of Christian righteousness, which we covered a couple weeks ago. He says, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. In other words, that we believe in God's truth, you know, from three weeks ago. And that we love one another as he's commanded us, that we love others after the pattern of Christ. And whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. So we live in fellowship with God. So I'm going to have the guys in the AV booth just play the audio from those four sermons. And we'll, no, I'm just kidding. Um, no, so uh, John says, our experience of confidence grows the more that we strive to live the Christian life faithfully. So as we pursue righteousness, that means as we turn away from our selfishness and sin, we repent of those things, we starve those voices in our hearts and our heads, and we live instead after the pattern that he's set for us, our confidence will grow. That as we fill our minds with God's truth, meditating on it so that the truths of the gospel and the truths of God become the things that saturate our minds more than any other voice from, you know, podcast or social media or cable news or whatever it is, that we will find ourselves more secure in his love. That as we give ourselves to the the sacrificial love for others that Jesus showed, as we practice that form of pursuing other people's good, even if it means giving up my own, that we find ourselves more secure and confident in God's love. And as we deepen our relationship with him through all of those things and through prayer and being being in the word and living in worship with other Christians, all of those things make us more confident in him. So those things build our confidence. And if that's true, then the converse or the opposite is true as well. That if we abandon the Christian life, um, not if we have the normal experience of sin and repentance, which is kind of the lifelong struggle or walk of Christianity, but if we just give ourselves over to living in a way that is opposite or cross-grain against God's will, we're going to find our confidence in his love go down. If we fill our minds instead with other voices, with people who are saying other, claiming other truths or claiming other goods or claiming other ways of life or just caring way more about other subjects, then we're going to find our hearts for God growing cold and our sense of his love growing cold. And if we harbor selfishness or bitterness in our hearts, 
whatever label you know we may put on it of self-protection or anything like that then if we harbor those things if we make our hearts cold then our sense of god's heart is going to grow cold as well so living after those things is going to shake our experience of confidence in god and it's going to it's not going to take us off that foundation but it's going to make our christian life joyless and fruitless and it feel like a chore and a drag instead of a delight. The way that John writes about these things, you know, they're, they're always kind of all woven together so that we couldn't touch on just one topic by itself because it's connected to all the others. That's the way he sees things. This is a tapestry, not like a thread or a set of threads tied together. Um, these things are all more connected than we think they are. Um, several of the high-profile guys who have kind of deconstructed out of Christianity over the last few years, so who have said, I no longer believe these truths, have also simultaneously either divorced their wives or turned out to have had affairs. Now, I don't know the correlation-causation kind of arrow there, but I think it's more than an interesting coincidence to see that often a giving up or an abandoning of Christian belief comes along with some form of abandoning the Christian life. Or people who are living in kind of bitterness and watchfulness who also kind of leave the faith or deconstruct. And so if you're struggling to have confidence in God, it's worth taking this to you know, your community group or someone else that you're close with who can help you kind of sift through these things and asking them to help you examine these areas of your life. So is there some area of life where I'm not in just the normal pattern of I sin and I fall and I get back up and I repent and I go on in God's forgiveness, but where I'm harboring something that I shouldn't? Is there a relationship that I'm maintaining brokenness or bitterness? Um, not that I can't reconcile because it's not possible with this person, but where I'm contributing to the problem where my heart needs to change. Is there some voice that I'm letting be too loud in my head that's just giving me, feeding me things that aren't the truths of the gospel and making me care about something that I really shouldn't care about as much as I do? Um, a close friend or someone can help us sift through those because we can't always see ourselves clearly. Sometimes we can and sometimes we can't. And so talking through those things with someone in community can be invaluable for helping us build our experience of confidence in God. So it is impacted by how faithfully we live the Christian life, like we talked about. So if we're struggling with confidence, sometimes that's what we need. Not always, but sometimes we need to find an area that needs to be more fully devoted to God and pursuing it. But that's not the only thing that affects our experience of confidence. Because that by itself, if we think, okay, I'm just going to look at me for God's confidence, that can take us to a place where we lose sight of God and we just think, okay, confidence comes from inside me. It's all on me to establish. I've shared this before, but once I was talking with a friend through something that uh, I, I'd done in the past, and I was still worked up about it. I was still kind of carrying this burden of guilt and shame around. I, I couldn't get over it. And eventually, as I'm talking through it, my friend stops me and he says, do you need to hear that you're forgiven? Because you're forgiven, in case you need to hear that. And there was something about him saying that to me, you know, he wasn't being like a Catholic priest absolving me in that moment. Uh, he was just communicating to me the reality that God had already established that I had been forgiven for this, that God knew about it when it happened. He knew about it before it happened. He still adopted me as his son, and he still loved me and forgave me in Christ. But something about just hearing that word from a friend 
totally helped my heart, helped heal my heart in that moment. So what I was failing to do there in that moment was a practice that Christians call preaching the gospel to ourselves. Preaching the gospel to ourselves, which is reminding us of the love and the grace that God has shown us in Christ and the forgiveness that we have in him. I think that's what John is alluding to in chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, when he says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. So we might have a condemning heart because something in our life is out of alignment and it needs to be brought back in. That can happen. Or we might have a condemning heart because we grasp the holiness of God and our own failures, but we're stuck in self-condemnation. John doesn't specify what he has in mind here. And I think that's because in both cases, John would say, we start by putting ourselves back under the grace of God. That maybe I need to repent and change something, but that repentance and that change is going to be me coming back under the, the forgiving and adopting grace of God. Or I may just be living in self-condemnation, and what I need is to be reminded afresh that God knew about my sin. That, like John says, God is greater than my heart, and he knows everything. That means he knows about sins that I'm not aware of in my own heart right now that one day I might see and be horrified by and be like, oh my goodness, I've been living in that, and I wasn't even aware of it. But nonetheless, God knew that, and he still forgave me in Christ. He still adopted me as his son. That's what it means to preach the gospel to ourselves. It means to remind ourselves once again, over again, that we are God's children by his grace through faith entirely because of what he has done for us in Christ. That he has finished the work of forgiving us and reconciling us to himself. It is done. And so what we need to do sometimes is we need to say, my heart is a mess right now, but God is greater than my heart. He knows more dirt than I know. And nevertheless, from eternity past, he decided, he declared that I would be his son, that I would be his daughter. And he made that happen through the life and the death and the resurrection of his son, Jesus. That God has reconciled me to himself. We have this fundamental need to constantly remind ourselves of that truth. I've heard one pastor say it's because our hearts leak. Um, our hearts leak. They leak truth. That we fill ourselves up with the truth and then it leaks out. And we need to be filled up again and remind ourselves once again of these truths of the gospel. One pastor said that these truths, uh, we can treat the gospel of God forgiving sinners and reconciling them to himself as like the ABCs of Christianity that get us started and then we move on to other stuff. And he says, that's not true. It's the whole alphabet. It's the A to Z that I don't grow past that reality that I'm forgiven through what Christ has done. I grow deeper into that reality just like a marriage, a good marriage grows deeper into the love and the vows that you make on the day that you get married. That's what a good marriage is, and that's what a good relationship with God is. It's growing ever deeper into these truths of God's forgiving grace for me, of his incredible sacrificial love that he has given me in Christ. That's what John celebrates in chapter 4, 
starting in verse 17, and this is where we'll close. He says, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. So God's grace gives us confidence, not because we're perfect or we're going to be perfect in this life, but because his perfect son gave his life so that we could be adopted. His love casts out fear, even the fear of judgment that we deserve, because he has already judged his son for our sin. That his perfect love helps us see how great his fatherly care for us is, and it reassures our hearts before him to where we can stand and sing, like we sang earlier, yet not I, but through Christ in me, that we are adopted given, reconciled entirely because of his grace. The more we live in that, the more we preach the gospel to ourselves as we strive to live the Christian life and we fail and we stumble as we live the Christian life, the more our experience of confidence grows because the more our experience of his love and his forgiving grace grows as well. Like John says at the end, we love because he first loved us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the, the grace that we see displayed here in these passages, that despite our sin, despite our failures, you have declared that we are your children, and you have secured that love through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. You have brought that love to our hearts through the Holy Spirit to help us see it and believe it. And I pray that we could live in a way that shores up that confidence, that helps us experience your grace in fresh ways, both by striving to live a life that honors you and pleases you, and also by preaching the gospel to ourselves and reminding ourselves of your grace when we fail and fall. We pray all these things in the name of your Son. Amen. Amen.